We are continuing our parable series through the, the stories and examples that Jesus gave his listeners and his followers uh, to explain what the kingdom of God is like. Because what the kingdom is like often collides with our expectations, and it, that's no less true than the early followers of Jesus. He was constantly realigning their expectations to what uh, the kingdom is like, what the kingdom values are, and how to live into the kingdom and and follow him. And so in order to really get the meaning of scripture, sometimes I find it really valuable to look at the early followers after the Bible was was written and and those stories took place. So the the, the followers of Jesus in the, the second, third, fourth centuries, how they responded to the words of Jesus helps me get into uh, the, that that mindset and understand how they they understood how they learned from and then how they responded to Jesus. And so one of the uh, one of the early faithful communities that fascinates me the most is the desert mothers and fathers of the third and fourth century. These were people who believed in God and followed Jesus and were a part of the Roman Empire uh, in the in the middle near east and they looked at the culture, what was happening, and they fled civilization and went into the caves and into the wilderness of the areas nearby in order to be alone with God and, and uh, to really follow him with the, as they understood more faithfully. And so they, uh, during this time in, in the third century, do you guys know what happened in the third century that impacted the early church? Okay, I'm going to tell you. No worries. Uh, someone online, I bet, answered. No worries. No awkward silences. Uh, Constantine came, uh, ha- had like a conversion experience, and decided to follow Jesus. Constantine was the Roman Empire, and he saw a sign in the clouds, and he went out to work. So it's kind of contested how, how accurate that, that actually happened or what took place there. But he basically took this, this fledgling faith and, and uh, took something that was illegal because Christians during that time were heavily persecuted for their faith and made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. And so Christians went from dying for their faith to being accepted by their culture to even uh, uh, the Roman government almost adopting Christianity as a state-sponsored religion. So that it became almost popular to say that one was a Christian to gain economically, politically, and uh, uh, socially in the empire. So the early, these followers in the third and fourth century saw what was happening and decided that it was no longer, um, uh, there, there wasn't the heavily persecuted pressure that, that uh, developed uh, through perseverance and, and pain uh, mature, devoted followers of Jesus, so they had to go out and seek that on their own. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Way of the Heart, which is a, a phenomenal book. I read this every couple years. It's like 100 pages. It's the sayings of the desert mothers and fathers on, on faith, spirituality, prayer, things like that. He says this, once the persecutions had ceased, it was no longer possible to witness for Christ by following him as a blood witness. Yet the end of the persecutions did not mean that the world had accepted the ideals of Christ and altered its ways. The world continued to prefer the darkness to the light. But if the world was no longer the enemy of the Christian, then the Christian had to become the enemy of the dark world. The flight to the desert was the way to escape attempting uh, conformity to the world. 
world. Now, these weren't necessarily the, the holy or most devout of people that escaped into the wilderness and into the caves. Sometimes these were just the disaffected followers of Jesus. They, they, uh, they were disillusioned by the adoption of faith by the Roman Empire. Some were leaving way, uh, behind a wayward life of crime or misconduct. Some were, were running uh, from what they felt was governmental overreach into their private affairs. Some didn't want to pay taxes to fund the Roman conquest of the known world. And so the, there were many, though, that were caught up into this, this uh, uh, devotion of, I want to press further into God and know Jesus and take seriously this life of following him. One example is uh, St. Anthony of the desert. Uh, in the way of the heart, Henry Nouwen lays out his story briefly. He was born around 251 AD, and he was the son of Egyptian peasants. When he was about 18 years old, he heard in church the gospel words, go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor, then come and follow me. And Anthony realized that that was for him personally. Those were the words of God for him. So he lived uh, for a period at the, as a poor laborer at the edge of his village, and then he withdrew into the desert where he lived for 20 years in complete solitude. All the introverts say yes and amen to that. <laughs> give me all the books and all the coffee and all the quiet. Um, during these years, Anthony experienced a terrible trial. The shell of his superficial securities was cracked and the abyss of iniquity was open to him. But he came out of this trial victoriously, not because of his own willpower or ascetic exploits, but because of his unconditional surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. When he emerged from his solitude, people recognized in him the qualities of an authentically healthy man, whole in body, mind, and spirit. They flocked to him for healing, comfort, and direction. And after that, he went into deeper solitude where he died at the age of 106. So this, this seems extreme though. Like, can we get real for a second? This seems extreme to go live in the desert for decades upon decades leaving all that you've known behind, your familiar surroundings, your friends, your family, your job, all the things that you found your identity in, that, um, where would someone get such an idea, right? And is this really even expected for us? Like, are, are we supposed to take turns living, you know, by Tuttle Creek Lake, just, you know, harvesting our own fish for food and things like that? Wait, is that what this means, to, to follow Jesus? And, and how would, if, if, if it's still true that we're supposed to live a dedicated, devoted life of following Jesus, what would that look like for us today that separates us from the world, the, the values and the systems that the world holds true and dear and normalizes to all of us? So in Luke 14, this is our parable for today. We're going to talk about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus in this day and age. So it says this in Luke 14, verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. His ministry is taking off. He's doing the conference circuit and it's, it's booked, it's sold out, right? And turning to them, he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? 
For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. That's Jesus' way, that last line. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Is Jesus' way of putting an exclamation and double underline under what he just said. It's the way to say, pay attention. This is super important. Okay? So these are bold words coming from Jesus. Let it not be said that these parables are simple children's stories. Just a plain text reading of this is like, whoa, is, is he serious about this? This is radical to think this way, to begin to live this way, to even, even dream about reorienting my life to do what he says to do. It's very challenging, wouldn't you say? So what does he mean when he says we must hate father, mother, wife, and children, and so on? Are we to angrily toss aside all of our meaningful relationships, all of our responsibilities to be a witness to Jesus? I would say some of us on social media think that's the way to do it. I would say, though, that Jesus has, it, it, there's a different meaning than what we initially come away with, this word hate, if you don't hate people around you. Remember, the first century Jewish culture, uh, to them, honoring one's family is of primary importance. In fact, God wrote in the Ten Commandments, you're supposed to honor your father and mother so that you can live a long life, right? And for any child that is rebellious and brings dishonor to the family, there carries actually a death penalty to that. So Jesus is using inflammatory rhetoric to get their attention, to probe deeper in their heart about where their loyalty lies. So instead of this word hate, it's true that you could put, if you are more loyal to your mother or father than me, if you're more loyal to your wife and children, to your friends, to your job, to your political party, if you're more, if you show more faithfulness to them than to me, you cannot follow me because you will not follow me. Because when you're going about your life and your husband says, I don't care what the Bible says, I want you to do this. When your friend shows up and needs you to bail him out and says, empty your bank account out, I need all your money, and you do so and miss your mortgage payment and put your family in jeopardy, that is showing loyalty, showing faith in that person above what God asks. Jesus is saying, to follow me, the primary positioning of your heart has to be toward me. Our love for God must supersede all other loves. Our loyalty to Jesus must supersede all other loyalties in this life. 
Otherwise, we are just following ourselves and anyone around us that promises security or favor or whatever it is that we're looking for. And when we do so, we must be ready to count that cost. We must be ready for the repercussions that happen of being misunderstood because we have a right place loyalty. We have a right placed love for Jesus that cuts across all the other expectations that this world wants to have for us. Jesus then tells two stories to demonstrate this important principle. You must take into account what it costs to become a disciple of Jesus. Now, I want to hit pause here because I want you to understand what Jesus is doing. He's got a large crowd, but he's not interested in crowds for the sake of crowds. He's interested in commitment. It's commitment over crowds. And so what he does in the beginning of his ministry is he invites personally people to come and follow him. He wants to make disciples or learners or apprentices to his way of the kingdom. So he invites, he invites, he invites, and people take him up. Some people don't. Some people walk away. Some people want to stand far off and listen to him. They're, they're more interested in interesting teachings or just kind of a weekend show. I mean, let's just be honest. Without an iPhones back then, there's just not much to do. So you got this latest, greatest conference speaker pop up, and it's like, sure, he's working miracles, he's gathering a crowd, I'll go check him out. But what Jesus does at a certain point, he shifts his ministry, so he starts to instead just invite widely and openly, although he continues to do that, he starts to challenge the crowd to whittle down and to find out who are the ones who are willing to pay the price to really be in my inner circle, to be among those followers that I can entrust the teachings of the kingdom to, who I can pass the baton to, that will carry on this message, that will carry on this ministry when I go away. Because the thousands won't do that. The thousands give up on him. Only 120 make it to the upper room on the day of Pentecost. From the the thousands, maybe tens of thousands that heard him preach, saw his miracles. The 120 in that first day were the ones he was looking for to entrust his Holy Spirit that would then take it to the rest of the world. So we're catching him at a time where there's a turn in his ministry where it's like, dang, Jesus... I, th- I thought you were like, you know, come to me, all you who are weary. Like, now you want me to count a cost? Like, I just thought this was a weekend show. I just thought this was going to, you know, you were going to bless me. I was going to pray a prayer. I was going to get some fire insurance. I was going to go to heaven one day. And you were just going to let me live the blessed life in the here and now. And Jesus says, oh, no. You vastly underestimated the cost of following me. Yes, there will be blessings. Yes, there will be an afterlife. Yes, you will be with me in paradise. And yet, in this world, you will have trouble. No student is above the teacher, he says. And so in this life, because I've experienced trouble, so too will you. Because everything that we're about, church, cuts against the grain of worldly wisdom. Everything that we're about, the way of love, the way of sacrifice, the way of of surrender cuts against everything that our world tells us we need to be happy. So Jesus tells two stories 
One, first about a tower. If you're going to go under, under uh, go a, a building project, certainly you're going to count your money and you're going to get your, you know, make sure your, your doors aren't sitting on ch- a Chinese cargo ship in the harbor somewhere. It's like, surely, right now, you're going to make sure you have what you need to complete your projects. I know we have several people in construction. How's that going right now? It's sort of like before the pandemic and all the, the uh, labor shortages and things, we knew that construction was always going to take longer and cost more. And now it's like exponentially true, right? But, but you have to take that into account if you're going to build something right now. And then he tells a second story. If you're a king or a queen and you've got a large army and there's a, there's a much bigger kingdom knocking at your door, aren't you going to make sure that your army can, can whoop them up and down the street? Or are you going to send a delegation and say, hey, I'm just kidding. What can I do for you today, kind sir? Aren't you going to make peace real quick? You're going to count the cost, lest you have div- devastating loss. And then he tells one more story. He gives one more example. Salt is good, but salt that has no flavor is good for nothing. And, he, and he, it's, it's just this like, what, what does this even mean that this salt is going to get thrown out? This salt is going to be disqualified from being used into, in the pot of stew or on the piece of meat or whatever it is. This is a pretty like bold statement for Jesus to make if, if he's just trying to build a big conference ministry. But if he's trying to ferret out those who can hear hard things and still say yes, then it makes total sense that he would keep challenging and poking and prodding to see who could handle the level of heat that it takes to truly follow Jesus. So there, there's a story about a man named Ernest Shackleton who in 1913 wanted to set out and explore the unknown Antarctic. So he needed a team of people, and, and in that day specifically men, to, to board his ship and be his crew. And this was perilous work. Nobody had ever done this. In fact, he told a reporter The unknown fields in the world, which are still unconquered, are narrowing down, but there still remains this great work. This is what he felt in his heart. This is a great work, and I need people I can trust, and I know who are not going to turn back. So he ran this ad in the London Times. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Holy cow. Is anybody experiencing a labor shortage right now? Maybe this is the ad you would have run because, because thousands of people responded to the ad. Thousands of people. And when his, his crew of 27 set out on his 350-ton ship, the Endurance, they set out for the journey of a lifetime. What was he thinking to make it that hard to say up front, this is not going to be a picnic. If you want to have fun, go sell ice cream. But I think he knew something that Jesus also knows about us. Things that are easy are often not rewarding. And there is something in us that when we look at what's at stake, there is something in our hearts that says, I want to rise 
to that occasion. I think there's something visceral in us that wants a challenge, that wants to venture to the wilderness, and we want to follow Jesus against all odds and against all warnings to say, I will give my life for this thing, this cause, this purpose, this man. And I think, I I just think, guys, today many of us Experience. I mean, I would say most of us, even if, I, and I know some of us have harder lives than others, but the hardness, the difficulty of our lives that we experience today is still much easier than people all over the world. And I don't want to minimize anybody's difficulty or trauma or any of that, but I do want to say we live a life of luxury by and large. The American dream beckons us to believe that we have the right to life, liberty, and we deserve happiness, which is defined as comfort, ease, and disposable time and income to indulge in all of my pleasures. I mean, I have three robot assistants at my house that are constantly listening for me to say, hey, Siri, what's the weather? Alexa. Turn on Spotify, full blast, right? Google, are you there? Like, who else is in? There? Who else is listening? I'm kind of creeped out, but I'm—it's just kind of nice to sit on my couch and do all this, right? Hey, Google, turn on the Roomba and vacuum my floor. Like that is comfort at ease, people. Like even when that thing doesn't work, it's still a lot better than vacuuming myself. I also have two sons, so that's... Actually, it's better than them vacuuming, too, for reasons, if you're a parent, that you understand, right? I mean, these things turn on the Xbox and fire up Fortnite. It puts on my favorite streaming, you know, whatever, so I can binge. Like, you know, is it cake? Whatever, no judgment, whatever you watch. But the more, more of this stuff that promises to make my life better, the less effort I spend on things, and interestingly, the less fulfilled I feel. I believe that many of us, believing in this American dream, have been lulled into a life of ease and comfort that has sapped us of our strength and vigor, that Jesus means to arouse and to beckon us to a life of challenge and hardship for the greater good, for the common good, for life beyond ourselves. The way of Jesus cuts against this by demanding that we give up our rights so we can embrace our responsibility as apprentices to Jesus. None of these things, no Roombas or digital assistants or anything, are evil or wrong. They're just impotent in the face of the call of the kingdom of God. Culture calls you to comfort. The kingdom calls you to its cause of redemption. Perhaps if you're struggling, perhaps if I'm struggling with boredom in my faith, it's due to having one hand gripping ease and comfort and the other hand gripping the call of God and not knowing which way I would prefer. Maybe it's time to let go and to go all in and surrendering to this call of the kingdom and to choose this day whom you will serve. No doubt, No doubt it is becoming more difficult to call yourself a Christian and to live a life of ease in America. We're a bit insulated in the Midwest. We're about five years, ten years behind the coast on trends. And in in more, I don't know, progressive, secular cities, it is hard to call yourself a Christian and have influence. Sometimes to have income. But the call of Jesus cuts through all of that and beckons us to more than just ease and to having it easy. 
To be an apprentice of Jesus increasingly means that we have to make difficult decisions. Say hard to hear things and behave in a way that casts us as outsiders. I would bet very few of us have ever had to experience backlash at work or in the classroom because we've called ourselves a Christian. But it's increasing, and I'm aware of that. And I don't think, I don't think the heat is going down anytime soon. We do this, we follow Jesus, and we say hard things and do hard things, not for attention, not for posturing, not for self-promotion, but for love. Because we follow the rejected Messiah who came to reconcile the world back to himself, but was deeply misunderstood, and we embrace that way of suffering, just like the master. So just a few additional thoughts on how this could apply to us in this day and age. The first question we must ask from these stories is, what is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? I mentioned a few, but here's some more. As we previously taught, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a learner, or perhaps better stated, an apprentice to Jesus. To be with him, to be like him, and to do the things that he does. That is discipleship. In, in other words, what Dallas Willard said, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. And the cost of doing this is less than, no less than total surrender of your entire life. This is why theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. It's not a physical death, but it's a death to self where we surrender everything to Jesus to follow him, no matter what the cost. Our call is to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to follow Jesus is to continually be realigned so that in every dimension of our hearts, the primary place of honor and loyalty and love is Jesus himself. That's a lifelong process. You don't pray a prayer and become a mature disciple. You don't pray a prayer, and then all of a sudden, you have a life of comfort and ease. That's an undiscipled convert of Jesus who has done that and expected to live a blessed life with no hardship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I know that's hard to hear, but that's exactly what Jesus is saying in this parable to count this cost. To be an apprentice to Jesus means to live in a way where, where these dimensions of our heart are being continually aligned as a tuning fork brings the pitch of a piano to its proper place. Much of discipleship requires unlearning and relearning. Jesus often said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He's challenging them. You think this, and I'm going to tear that down and build something new in its place that resembles me in your life. So I, I do think sometimes in, in this common day and age, what many of us are calling deconstruction in the church is actually just discipleship, where Jesus is coming more fully into our lives and tearing false things down and building himself back up in our place. I'm okay if you call it deconstruction. What I'm more, most interested in is what is God building in your life? Tear the things down. Get to the core of the gospel. Challenge all the things. I'm fine. But what is standing in its place? Because Jesus has always said, I say unto you. He wants to rebuild something in his likeness, in his image, so that we can follow him more faithfully. 
Along the road of following Jesus, we're asked difficult questions to dig into the core values and the trust structures of our life. So you might even sit here and ask yourself questions like, how do I respond when I feel threatened with loss? What do I reach for for comfort in those situations? What do I fear the most? What am I clinging to more than Jesus? Is it my family? Is it my money and possessions? Job? Race or ethnicity, sexuality, party affiliation, friends? What is it that I've put in front of Jesus in my life? And you might ask yourself, where am I placing the greatest hope for the future? Is it in the hands of God or is it in my own strength and power? The cost of discipleship primarily means I'm no longer in control and that I've, been given, I've given leadership of my life to Jesus. And I've committed myself to be a part of his church through participation and presence. But secondly, and let's not miss this question. First was, what is the cost of being a disciple? Second is, what is the benefit of being a disciple of Jesus? There's a low-hanging fruit answer that I I prayed and and I have faith in Jesus and, and I have redemption, salvation. I'll spend eternity with him. But when I think of answering that question, what is the benefit of following Jesus? In terms of a flourishing life in the here and now, I come to a three-part answer. There's three parts to this answer of following Jesus and its benefits. First is the truth. As the Apostles' Creed starts out, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. I believe to my core that that is true. Now I have off days, I doubt sometimes, but in my core, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe that none of us are happy little accidents, but that we've been created by a creator for his purpose and his pleasure. And the greatest pursuit of my life is knowing him, what was on his mind when he thought of me, and what I can do to serve him in truth. Secondly, goodness. There's something in this world that happens to us. When a genuine, unguarded relationship takes place between myself and another person, or a good deed done in earnest that warms my heart and cheers me. There's something about that. I don't know what you call that. I just call it good. It's morally good. And I have a response to it. St. Thomas Aquinas defined love as the willing the good of another and to sacrifice the self of others is a picture of supreme good that has been woven into our world. Yes, there is profound brokenness at the same time. But we've been invited into its restoration first for ourselves and then for others. So that to borrow from Tolkien, everything sad will soon come untrue. And the goodness of God that he intended will be fully renewed everywhere. And so I'm reminded of the famous saying by Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. That is good. And then finally, truth, goodness, and beauty as the benefit of following Jesus From the microscopic dividing and multiplying of cells in a developing baby to the majestic colorscapes of the Grand Canyon 
to the awe-inspiring smattering of galaxies captured by the Webb Space Telescope, there's profound beauty in our universe. Have you seen that thing? The, the computer crashed that was counting the galaxies. It's amazing. We have a good and true and beautiful God. We have been carefully placed in this wonderful storyline of cosmic redemption that will have us asking for plots and details for billions and billions of eons to come, and we'll be able to ask Jesus himself, tell me the story of how you did this. It's so beautiful. Now, I know that some of us here would say, I've only experienced the opposite of truth, goodness, and beauty from followers, supposed followers of Jesus, and it's harmed me so. And I understand that because I've been, I've been on both sides. I've been the victim and I've been the perpetrator of ugliness and evil and, and all that. But what you need to know, if that's you, is that God never gives a pass to the wayward behavior of his followers. He always disciplines them first. And that is good and true and beautiful, to actually have accountability in this universe from someone who is so morally well. Let the words of Jesus echo in your heart, both as a warning as an, as, and as a comfort that there is accountability. Let not the salt lose its flavor, lest it be discarded. Bold and sobering words for all of us, I would say. And so I want to leave you just with a simple story that I think I've told here before about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that famous pastor and, and theologian and, and martyr. What's interesting about Bonhoeffer is that he wrote an entire book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he did it to push back against the cheap grace that was being offered by the Western church of his day, the very church that would be in bed with Hitler and, and have another state-sponsored religion that pushed forward the Nazi agenda. He wrote this book because he had spent time among the black church in America. He actually was a, a visiting pastor in a church in Harlem, and he wrote about that, that experience, and he wrote this book because he was convicted by their deep affection for Jesus and their identification with his suffering. And this was in contrast to, to the easy believism, as he called it, that he saw running rampant. He was a promising academic that could have stayed in America but yet move back to identify with the sufferings of Jesus and the cause of Christ in Nazi Germany. And he became increasingly alarmed on the rise of Hitler, and he started this small community to train pastors and church leaders called Finkenwald. It was this small camp in, in the middle of nowhere. And one day a friend who was really, you know, we all have friends that go, your life choices, like, I get God and all that, but hey, come back to reality. Like, maybe take that job in America, take your family there, like, avoid some danger. And so Bonhoeffer and his friend get into a boat, and they row to the other side of the lake. And on the other side of the lake from Finkenwald is a Nazi, a Hitler youth camp that are training teens and, and children and brainwashing them, indoctrinating them into the way of Nazism. And Bonhoeffer points over to Finkenwald and says, that has to be stronger than this. That, the way of Christ and how we teach people, the cost of discipleship, what it takes 
Because grace is free, but it's not cheap. And that has to be stronger than the brainwashing of this world that wants to tell us this is the easy way. The cost of discipleship, the way of Jesus, is more true, good, and beautiful than anything else that this world has to offer. The only question for us is have we really counted that cost? And have we responded in a way that demonstrates our loyalty and our love to Jesus? So this week, in response, I want to invite us to take this next step, and I'll have the worship team come up. Why don't you stand with me, in fact? I want you to ask yourself this simple question. You can do so beginning even now. In what ways do I need to count or recount the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? In what ways is the Holy Spirit speaking to me even right now? About places in my heart where I've said no. I've said no, you can't have that. I won't do that. I won't say that, I won't go there. What, what is it that you're saying no to Jesus about? Let's, let's pray together. So Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we ask, we ask that you would speak to us even here and even now. This cost of following your son, Father, what is it for me? What is it today? God, I pray over everyone here that you would nudge us along, that you would speak to us, and that you would bring clarity to our hearts. There are some that need to say yes to Jesus, maybe for the first time. That we've been holding back, God, from you, and I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to say yes. And there are some here, God, myself included, who, who need to recount the cost of following you. So I pray for that same grace to know what you're saying to us. What am I giving my loyalty to above you, Jesus? Is it family? Is it job? Is it some sort of security? Is it unforgiveness, bitterness? What is it, God, that you're inviting me to let go and to say yes fully and wholeheartedly to you? God, I pray as we go on about our week, I pray that you would impress your words upon us, Jesus. Pray that it would be the words of Scripture, the, the words that you spoke, Jesus, that we must take up our cross and we must follow you as an apprentice. I pray as each day goes on that that, that your spirit would drive that deeper into our hearts. So we ask you to come. We ask you to come with the full force of your spirit because we know when you come, you come in gentleness, you come in peace, you come in joy, but you do come in challenge. And so, God, here we're open to you at whatever step we need to take. We pray this in Jesus' name. And actually, let me, I just, actually, keep your eyes closed, keep your head bowed. If you're at home, same thing. I just want to pray a prayer. 
and we're just going to pray a prayer of commitment to Jesus. If that's you, if you resonate, you can just pray along with me. You can say it out loud. You can say it to yourself, however you need to. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died in my place. Thank you for forgiving my sin. I turn fully and wholeheartedly to you. And I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill me. Amen. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.